All right. There are some handouts on one of the tables if you want one. It's uh, this table back here. The uh, majority of the handout is Bible verses. So if you have your Bible, you could forego the handout too. And uh, we, I also learned that the handout, I just, I just lopped off some of it. So we can, uh, we can talk a lot about it, or we don't have to use it. As always, it's more of a guide than a rule. Now, I believe you talked about some of this with Pastor Bukes two weeks ago, but I, um, I, I'm not sure, though. So we don't, uh, we don't have a lot of meetings between the pastors, and sometimes you get to hear things twice. I'm sure it won't be exactly the same, though, because uh, we're each unique. Actually, that's part of our lesson today, too, even. Holy smokes. All right, so the uh, biblical text is Genesis 1, uh, 26 through 31. I got it there on the first page. And then Genesis 2, 18 through 25. These are the two, uh, well, it's not in its entirety, but kind of the two accounts of the creation of man. One being kind of a more kind of universal or kind of, you know, looking from afar and then one looking very closely. Um, but of course, I mean, they, they, they say the same thing um, in a unique way. Uh, okay, so the, um, so first things first, when we go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, uh, I'm not going to belabor this point because we've already talked about this, but God creates a someone, not a something. And the reason why I bring this up is because uh, I, I've run into this several times in the last several weeks where I've said to confirmation kids, in fact, I said it Wednesday night, uh, there's a young man who's going to receive First Communion and we have First Communion classes and um, the prohibition of blood in Leviticus 17. Um, I ask a question that I think is going to be obvious. Um, uh, so God, oh, so first of all, because I'm sure everybody, I'm sure Leviticus 17 is one of your favorite Bible <laughs> chapters. Um, so Leviticus 17 is, uh, God is talking about the uh, sacrifices, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament tabernacle about the forgiveness of sins. And God has a, a prohibition about drinking blood, which at first, you know, seems kind of obvious. It sounds gross. But um, back in the old days, ancient days, and even up through, uh, you know, kind of the modern period in places like, you know, uh, in America, like Native Americans, uh, there are, some, there's, yeah, anyways, drinking blood was part of uh, the religious systems because they would uh, receive life. You know, the, the creature's life, that would give them life. Well, I, I said, well, why, why would God not want to have you drink animals' blood? And he's like, I don't know, because it's gross. I said, no, well, what's the difference between, like, you and animals? And I, I'm thinking that the, the, the kids are going to say, well, I'm not an animal. I'm a person. And, yeah, we're animals. I'm like, no, you're not. You're people. <laughs> well, you know, we're animals. I mean, that's what we learn in school, right? They're all part of the, they're the top of the food chain, and they're all just amongst the genre of species. Um, I said, well, no, that's not true. You're unique. You know, people are people, and animals are animals. I said, you're all creatures. You know, God, God made you. God made yeah, you know, the animals, but you're not, you're not an animal. And so I spent the time convincing this young man about that he's not an animal, which I feel like that should be good news. Oh, shoo, I'm not an animal. Great. Yeah, well, yeah, it comes from a fundamental a secular vision where God's not really part of it and has no kind of issue in creation. 
which of course is, uh, you know, for Christians, we don't believe that, by the way, just in case you, but, um, but the idea is that, uh, yeah, so, so the idea is that God is amongst, active in creation, creating people, some ones, not some things, and that's the fundamental difference between animals and people, and we see that in the text in Genesis chapter 2. Carol. Maybe this is your segue. No, no, go ahead. Uh, yeah, by the way, because, I mean, we're... What, what struck me this morning when, when you were reading Yeah. was, paraphrasing, God made the animals out of dirt. Right. So, right, with Adam too, right? But you didn't read I, yeah, I didn't, because I thought it was going to be too long, and I wanted to put it on there, too. So, Carol, keep talking. This is good. Hey, it's a great segue. You made the animals out of dirt. Yeah. But he made woman, not out of dirt. Right. But out of flesh. Yeah, person. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, this is, I'm just saying that, uh, this is why we're having this Bible study. <laughs> now, Carol has a very good point. Yep. Why that is say the Bible Yeah. Right. And I've been probably reading this for all my life, and I was like, Yeah, right. Well, let. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's back up just a little bit, because Adam is also created out of the ground. And but what's the fundamental difference between when God creates uh, animals out of the ground and when He creates Adam out of the ground? What's the what's the one difference, Holly? And actually, says in the text, and He was well. There's my Bible here. You know, I wasn't going to put the whole Bible passage on the page, but now I should have. And then, well, then we'll get to Carol's point, but we have to do the, the backup here real quick. Now, okay, so, so this is important. So verse 7, then, God, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, of course, whose life is it? God's life. So it's divine life. That's important. And the man became a living creature. Now, at first glance, he, that's just like animals, right? Well, no, because, first of all, God does not breathe into animals. And that breath is God's life. So, the animals don't bear the image of God. So, they, that's why man is created in God's image and animals are not. And that's why... Man. And so when I use man again, of course, I use man in terms of male and female. Um, man is someone, not something. You are people, not animals. <laughs> in fact, uh, I drew this little picture here. Uh, sketch note is what we call it. So this is uh, important. This makes a big difference between uh, us and animals, is that God breathes which means out of his mouth, like speaking. And, um, you know, it goes into Adam, into his heart. And then he speaks back, which we'll find out in a little bit. He, can't, he doesn't speak back. So what's the first words that Adam says? It's in Genesis 2. Yeah. So he actually doesn't speak until this person is part of the scenario. So I, I draw this part as kind of like Genesis chapter 1. And now this, that comes to Carol's point, is that Eve is created out of Adam. Or, well, I mean, we don't know his name until at that moment, cause, because uh, Adam's name is not named until Eve is created. So we have like a general term for man. We always think in terms of gender, but gender is not 
created until Eve is created. So, anyways, but okay. So, uh, so Carol brings up the point is that Ad, uh, Eve is not created like Adam is. So uh, now the word is translated as rib. I think probably Pastor Bukes mentioned this last week. Is that you know it's not necessarily a rib; it's like a side. So there is a a unity between the two, but at the same time they're distinct. And so, um, well, let's just keep going. So, so God creates someone, not a something. Um, Oh yeah, that's I included that quote. Thanks to this, uh, the very end of that quote there at the bottom of the page. Thanks to this property, man and woman are able to dominate the other creatures of the visible world. Dominate does not mean abuse, and that doesn't necessarily mean squashing the bugs. Although you know, I'm I'm willing to to argue that point that maybe it does, especially Japanese beetles. Yeah, they eat my plants and aphids and. Other nasty bugs that they just want to live, I know. But so do I. <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay. Uh, so, so part of that is something that uh, is called the original solitude. So, so before Eve comes along, Adam or man is, is, uh, man is created. And uh, he, he's first an I before a we. And that, that's important for us to really understand because it helps us put ourselves into context. So an eye by itself is not good. That's Genesis 18. It, um, it's translated in the ESV. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So the, the solitude, which is part of who we are as uh, a person, is it, when, it's, when God says it's not good, that doesn't mean it's evil. Um, we want to think about it not being full. So kind of like, you know, my coffee tastes really good, but it's not a full cup. So it's not good, even though it tastes good. All right. So it's the same idea is that Adam, there's not necessarily anything lacking with Adam, but it's not to the fullness of what God is doing. So man searches for Meaning. By naming the animals. And when he names the animals, he learns something. First, he's not an animal. He's radically different. And he discovers himself in relationship to God in the world. Um, so what, what that means then is that his, which seems maybe too obvious, but it's, it's not, uh, well, I thought being a person was obvious, but... Um, so God, so Adam understands himself first in relationship to God, which is there's a Latin term, quorum Deo. And he understands that himself primarily before God, which of course is a foreshadowing of uh, what all of us will face at the final judgment, right? We'll stand before God alone. But when you stand before God alone, um, there's, you are alone, but, but you're not alone. <laughs> so this is the same thing with Adam. He stands before God, and even though he's alone, he's not alone because he's with God. God's with him. So Eve is, 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 comes along for a, a very, very wonderful and specific purpose. That also reflects upon who Adam is, too. Okay, so, so um, he understands, then he understands himself about the world, meaning there's no other animals here. I mean, none of these animals here are like me. So there is a longing for another person. It is, it's part of creation that Adam longs to be in relationship not just with God, but with the world or, or you know, other people. So that's why we understand ourselves first as an I, then as a we. Um, 
And what's really important, though, that's, that's a really interesting thing, though, is because in, in his solitude, man is set in a unique, exclusive, and unrepeatable relationship with God himself. So when God creates you, he, he creates you and not another, which echoes Luther's small catechism and the explanation to the first article of the Creed. Who did God create? Me. And then all creatures. So this is a, uh, you know, which is funny. I think it's funny because the Pope sounds just, just kind of like Martin Luther there. So I just kind of laugh when I read that. Because uh, uh, for the Roman Catholic Church, when, the, when John Paul II wrote some of these thoughts, it was kind of like, ooh, hey, what is he getting at? And I'm like, well, hey, it sounds like a small catechism. In fact, uh, which inter- I, my, I can't remember if I said this or not, so we are entering into Nerdville, by the way, Marilyn, so I just want to make sure that we... When Lutherans, during the Reformation, would talk about people... If I told you this, what Bible passage did they use the most? Yeah, when they, so it, this is in contrary to kind of the Roman Catholic understanding. Obviously, the Roman Catholics use Genesis 1 and 2. But Lutherans did not. For, I mean, they also use this, but not, not right away. And it's based on this idea that we're, I'm an I before I'm a we. By the way, not exclusive of the we, but I mean, this is, I want to make sure that you understand that. This is the. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's, uh, no, but in terms of like how we understand ourselves as people, like uh, beings, this is uh, something the, the evangelicals use it a lot for uh, pro life passages. I know what that is. I have to recite it every year, which, I mean, it's a great passage, but there's more to this psalm. It's a psalm. Psalm 139. Yeah. So what's interesting is the Lutherans don't go back to Genesis to talk about how man man was created, but they go to Psalm 139. And this is because of this notion that God has made me and all creatures, which of course makes sense, because if there's... you, You can't worry about the creation of the world unless you are, in fact... Created. It's, it's really kind of a silly point to talk about the world if you're not there. So Luther's, Luther, Lutheran understanding is, you know, accepts this reality, which, again, is kind of a... It's a very interesting uh, theological insight, which we could talk more about, but we're not going to. Okay, so the whole point, though, is, is that when God makes me and all creatures, that me is, is, is something unique, unique, uh, Exclusive, meaning there's no other me's, and that there, it's unrepeatable, meaning that I will be the only me in the universe. So that, that, that comes with a dignity and a, um, yeah, dignity. Great. Jody. I find it interesting, a little ironic, that um, you can take that to apply today. That, well, Absolutely. Right. And it's still, I mean, it's still the, the only way to have a relationship. Well, and that's exactly right. Now, the thing is, though, in today's um, uh, reality, though, this I before we, but not, so Luther, uh, the biblical language is that you're first a, a, a man solid in solitude, that, of course, is not the end of the story, right? In today's world, when two individuals come together, uh, do they remain individuals? Yeah, see, this is where... In modern culture, you would say that marriage... The idea of one flesh in marriage is, is very foreign to today's understanding of marriage. In fact, we see this very, very clearly in um, a very practical aspects. Um, when you get married, the, the the thought might be is that you lose your 
who's your identity, yourself. So, um, you know, so how does that get played out in practical terms? Separate bank accounts, prenuptial agreements. Um, so, I mean, there's a variety of things where people will say, you have to what? Protect yourself when you get in marriage. Because what are they accepting? That divorce is a natural outcome of marriage. Yeah. Um, which, of course, divorce happens, and it's a tragedy. Anybody who's been through a divorce, even the people I've talked to who have experienced divorce, from my perspective, as like kind of the best, like they still have relationships with their ex-spouses, no one ever says, this was good. This was a good thing. So it's tragedy. It's tragic on, on any level, on, on, on every level. But anyways, so the whole point, though, is, is that, uh, so Jody, yeah, you're right. This is so applicable to today's world, but unfortunately the world really celebrates this I apart from the we. It, well, exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, the way, the way that God has made you. And so this is really important for us is that um, Adam's longing or man's longing for this other person is, is part of how God makes, makes us. So we are meant to live in relationship to another. Hence, you're made someone for someone. And that's Adam's point at the end. He's like, hey, I found all these things. And I'm not made for these, these things, but for a person. Okay. So now, so then you have the original unity. Now, Adam and Eve, uh, so this original unity, so if our primary understanding is standing before God, before we stand uh, before one another, what makes Adam and Eve then are primarily brother and sister before they are husband and wife. And this actually gets played out later on when, um, so, so the idea is that uh, marriage is kind of the icon of Christ in the church. That's from Ephesians chapter 5. But at the same time, it's an image of, of creation, God creating Adam and Eve. And so there's this unity that's within marriage that is unique. But it's not the only sign. And I think in the, the reading um, uh, on the dignity and vocation of women, John Paul says that. He says this is like the, the main primary sign, but it's not the only one. And then he doesn't really talk about it after that, which is... Which we which you should talk about. So is that? Uh, so this gets played out then with friendships. So I, I kind of have these two relation, primary relationships: marriage and friendship. Marriage, of course, is made for man and woman, male and female. Friendship, of course, can be just as uh, it can be uh, intimate and loving, but of course it's not conjugal. And this is kind of the, the disordered uh, relationships of, of, of those who engage in same-sex attraction. Um, so, so the idea, though, is that, the thing is, though, is that this idea that Adam and Eve are first brother and sister before they are husband and wife doesn't mean that as brother and sister they're lacking in this longing for relationship. It takes on a different form, but it's still affirmation of them as people and God's creatures. We see this primarily, though, in John chapter 15. And if you watch the Jungle Book, also at the end when Baloo supposedly dies, and uh, not Simba, who's the panther, Bakira, right? He quotes John 15, which I think is a great, right? And I, I have to admit, that's a very, that's a very, very great example of what we're talking about. So go ahead and watch the Jungle Book later today. Is that Baloo shows himself as a true friend by, by dying, by sacrificing himself. 
by giving himself up completely to the other. Now we see that in marriage in the conjugal act. Conjugal love or spouse. So, so the, the, uh, he, the, in the document on the dignity of, of vocation of women, he briefly touches on this. But um, this is really important for us, is that in creation between man and woman, it's within our bodies that echoes this, this uh, desire for unity. Um, but it also can be found in friendship but in, a, in, a very, in a different way, fundamentally different way. But it's still the same uh, in terms of intimacy, which I, will, I, I learned from Christopher West. He, and I'm sure he got it from somebody else, but maybe not. Intimacy means into me see. Like, see into me. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a fun little thing to say. All right, but um, uh, friends do that. And obviously we see that in the biblical example of David and Jonathan. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself, but surely. But this is where, in Genesis, where God sets the basic foundation for marriage. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's actually in the tapestry. It's, it's woven in the fabric of reality that you can't, have, you can't have people without marriage. Now, of course, we can say, yes, there's plenty of, of uh, families who are, are, you know, are not married but have children. But in terms of the way it's created to be, Marriage is the environment in which be fruitful and multiply is, is to happen. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but that, that's okay. Uh, Krista. I only want to ask you, um, because you said that there were um, brothers and sisters. Right. They realized after the fall that they were different. Naked and without shame. Yeah, so this is really important for us. Now, different, what do you mean by different? Yeah, that they realize um, uh, uh, the, the unity, what they had, was essentially broken. Broken, yeah, absolutely. So that, that's the shame. Shame is a boundary experience in this Genesis account. So what happens right at the end of the reading in Genesis chapter 2, uh, therefore man should leave his father and mother and become one flesh, uh, and the wife and him are, were naked and without shame. So that naked and without shame is a very important thing. It doesn't mean they're just, you know, like they're at some nudist colony. Um, but it means naked and without shame means a complete vulnerability to the other, to each other. And that can only happen in a, in a relationship of pure gift or unconditional love, we'll say, or... Um, and so Adam and Eve see each other primarily as people, as someones, not some things. Sin comes along, and what, what's, once they eat of the fruit of the, the knowledge of good and evil, what do they do? They, yeah, they cover themselves up so they can no longer see each other. So yeah, they do know they're different, absolutely. Um, uh, but it's it's a knowledge of themselves, of the the loss, and of course, when you cover yourself up, who are you primarily looking at? Yeah, yourself. So this is another thing too. Is that so? What happens with the shame is that um, sin binds Adam and Eve. Before this, they are free to love God and love one another. Sin comes along and binds them, and when it binds them, they become turned in on themselves. And it's impossible to look outside themselves unless God comes along. That's actually what God does. He comes along and says, Adam and Eve, you know, where are you? And they have to respond. And what does he do, though? He... He takes those, you know, the coverings that they made, and then he covers them with something else, with his covering, which is a foreshadowing of Christ's covering of the original righteousness. So they will be covered again in, in the robes of righteousness of Christ's death and resurrection, and in that moment they'll be restored to uh, what they were, which of course will happen 
once we're all resurrected. So we'll return to being naked and unashamed, or without shame, in heaven. Because we'll see each other. How does Paul talk about it? We'll see each other as we are. We look now through a glass. It's been translated in all different... I, don't, I, I, I always think of the Swedish Ingmar Bergman film, Through a Glass Darkly, by the way, which is a great movie. Um, uh, so I don't think technically that's what the Greek says. But Rachel. Yeah. And assuming that when animals were created, there was probably male and female. Sure. Why does it seem like the creation of woman is sort of an afterthought? Okay, this is a good question. But now, uh, yes, I'm all. Tr- I'm still trying to answer Carol's point. By the way, so <laughs> and to a certain extent, Jody's right. Even though. I, I, Jody articulated in the way of the law. We should be thinking about it in the way of the gospel. Women, it's not an afterthought, but a, a culmination. It's a fulfillment. Yeah, it's a fulfillment. So, so Adam, Adam, by his own confession, says, "I'm not quite right." And, uh, okay, good. So he confesses that creation is not done yet. It wasn't like he was done and be like, oh, sorry, I forgot something. God is still working. So I, I hate to say this, but, you know, he kind of saves the best for last in that sense. Now, why is that true, actually? So we've already talked. We've already talked about the uh, a little bit about the role of Mary, right? Mary is an image for all people, male and female. And Mary, of course, echoes Eve. So why would Eve be the kind of the fulfillment on two levels? One is relationship-wise, but uh, Mary is is again a template for both men and women because. In in uh, in a woman, you you see ourselves being primarily receivers. So um, now the thing is though, about Eve and Adam. Um, uh, Adam doesn't know who he is yet until Eve comes along. So this is I mean this is re- I mean this is so fundamentally important to us as people. Of course, as husband and wives, but as people in general, is that um, we don't know ourselves unless we are with people, community, um, and of course, you know, husband and wife is then like this, like extreme uh, environment in which that gets played out. So, so, um, so Adam's words do. Uh, when he sees he when he sees Eve, he's like, "Okay, I know myself now." This at last, this at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Um, so before he was alone, but now he's with Eve. So so we have this not not good and very good contrast. So um, yeah, it, it, she's she so woman actually becomes this highlight in the creation story. Um, because, uh, okay, so let's fast forward to Ephesians chapter 5. What, is Christ, what does Christ do for the church? There's two words you could probably use. His primary stance towards the church is love. But how is that love kind of manifested? Gives himself up. Crucifixion, resurrection. And of course then, that applies then to the husband and wife. Is that the husband, he, he has no one to love unless he has a wife. So he is not himself unless the wife is there. So there is this strong unity or community then between Adam and Eve. Because Adam cannot 
be who he is unless Eve is there. And Eve, Eve likewise. Eve cannot be herself without Adam. Um, so in the, in the document, in the reading, you know, John Paul kind of talks about the, in the beginning creation story, then he, he talks about person, community, and gift. Those are, those are all kind of it connects, is that you can't, Adam cannot be himself in relation to Eve, and Eve cannot be herself in relation to Adam without giving and receiving. Um, I spent a lot of time talking about other things before we get to that point, but let's just, uh, if you want to just turn to the end of the handout, I chopped it off because I wanted to introduce this idea, but maybe, well, maybe Pastor Beeks will teach next week, I don't know. Um, I, I lay this out kind of real simple. So, uh, what does the giver do? Gives. What does the giver give? Gift. <laughs> Who does the giver give the gift to? Receiver. What does the receiver do? Receive. What does the receiver receive? Gift. Now the thing is, though, now we have we have something that happens in this moment. Because what are gifts? What what uh, the mo- uh, so when a gift is received? At first, though, what was a gift supposed to be? Uh, what is done with a gift? At first, yeah, given. So what happens is the receiver, by virtue of receiving this gift, turns into something, a giver. This is a very dynamic and unique relationship. We first see this in God, in creation itself. Um, We have JC over here, remember? Some of you haven't seen this. I, I drew this a few weeks ago. So let me just explain what this is. This is Jesus. This is man and woman. Adam and Eve. Husband, wife, boy, girl, whatever. Um, and when uh, God breathes, right? Speaking and breathing are the same, same uh, motion. I can't can't speak without breath. So God speaks, and Adam is created. Now, of course, Adam is not by himself, but also, I don't know, I'm not going to draw this, but imagine now these words going into people's ears and the hearts, because Adam now is uniquely connected now to Eve. But the thing is, though, if they received God's word, that word, though, doesn't cease being a gift because it's been received. We see this in Isaiah 55. God's word goes out. And what does it do? It accomplishes what it's set out to do. But what we find out, though, is that it's not, there's not a period at the end of that sentence. That word keeps on being spoken. See, when God creates, it's never period. God is always creating. What would happen if God stopped creating? Think about this. Yeah, we wouldn't exist anymore. So what happens is that when God creates or gives, if you're using the language of gift, gives, it's not a, uh, it's, it's, it's a giving. It's always a giving. Because if he stopped giving, we would cease being receivers. So there's a dynamic nature to this gift that God gives. It's that when we receive that gift, we become giver without ceasing to be receiver. Okay. What if we become foreigners? Yeah, or, or, or uh, yeah, re- you know, rejectors or whatever, yeah. Um, you, you, well, first of all, you, you stop being the person that God has created to be, which, of course, is sin, right? I mean, this sin it means 
not being who God creates us to be. Yeah, no, so yeah, that's exactly right. So what the Bible will talk about is being called back to. So uh, Israel is meant to be a bride of God. The language of marriage is, is, is in, within the Old Testament. What, what, is, what is the response to them not being a wife? You see this in Hosea. Yeah, they become a prostitute. And then when Hosea approaches Gomer, it's just a name in itself. Um, when Hosea approaches Gomer on the uh, slave you know, kind of trading block, what does Hosea say to Gomer? She hasn't been acting as a prost- I mean, she hasn't been acting as a wife. She's, a, she's basically been a prostitute. And now she's for sale to be a slave, sex slave, who knows. And what does Hosea say? Does anyone, does anyone remember? I mean, again, Leviticus 17, Hosea chapter 3, not ones that we spend a lot of time thinking about. He says, you weren't my wife, and now you're going to be my wife. Like, he doesn't make her, you know, like, he doesn't buy her to make her a slave. Or, like, to be a wife, as it, to be a slave, but, like, kind of like a wife. Or a wife that has some notion of being a slave. He, he, he calls her back to being who she was, or is, a wife. So the gift is still being given. And the proper response is then to receive it. Um, And so this then becomes this idea of within creation, but also in relationship then to people. So our first relationship to God, of course, is understood in gift and giving. That seems right. For by grace... You know, through faith, not of our works, it's a gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? So we, we see that and we accept that kind of without thinking about it. God, even though we are sinful, God loved us, died for us. He gives this gift to us. But that gift, is, what does he exactly give to us? Love. Yeah, uh, lo- love. Love is also an action. So we think about gift in terms of what form of language. I know this is an English lesson, but do we think about it in verb or nouns? Yeah, a lot of times in nouns, right? But love primarily is a verb. It's a doing. So when God gives us love, we should be doing something. What is it? Yeah, life. Whose life? God's life which is a return then to what Adam was created for, breathing life and to live with God and with another, somebody else. So the forgiveness of sins removes the bond of sin, giving us freedom, but at the same time, it's not as if God just simply forgives our sins and lets us, lets us be, right? He prim- So he... So, uh, Forgiveness is like a negative gift. It takes something away, right? It takes our sins away. But of course, there has to be a giving in replace of it. And that, of course, is life. Now, that, is, it, now, that giving of life is through love, manifested through the crucifixion. These are all actions, but these are also events. So... Um, so we see that within our relationship with God, that he takes away our sins, gives us his life to live. But that life has a certain character to it. Um, and if we're thinking about solitude and unity, the character, of course, is unity, manifested within the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So that life that God gives us has this community within that life. 
And of course, then that's manifested between Adam and Eve in their relationship with one another. So that gift then now becomes part of Adam and Eve's relationship. So Adam, when he sees Eve for the first time, she is inherently a gift. So Eve is is a gift by virtue of her being herself. And when Adam says, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, is a, is a, he, he is confessing something about her that she already is. So his statement doesn't make her this thing. He's just declaring who she already is. She is this one with me. Which is a very beautiful thing to say, I think. I mean, it sounds really strange, but um, he's declaring this woman to be the one who makes his life whole. What it's supposed to be. Now, the character of that relationship. So, so, uh, so Eve is, is a gift, which makes Adam receiver. But who's the giver in that? That's right. God is. So when Adam receives Eve as gift, what does he become? Giver. And that actually then uh, describes the relationship now between Adam and Eve. Adam is primarily the giver. What does he give? Love. I mean, gift. the gift is, is a, an action, but it's also himself. And Eve receives. And when Eve receives, she then becomes, she returns it. She returns that same love. And so, like I said, there'd be a bunch of arrows between the boy and the, the girl up there, the husband and wife up there. So the gift is not unilateral, but it's a mutual exchange. It's a giving and receiving. This is, uh, this is very important for us as people because then this also defines how we approach one another. See, the unfortunate consequence of sin is that uh, when we husbands and wives see each other not as people but as things, there's, two, there's kind of two fundamental reactions. We share space but not each other, so we can live with each other without actually being with each other. Or we simply use each other. Um, you know, and those, those are, obviously that's, that's a disordered love. That's not, that's not good. Um, okay. There's more to say to that because... Uh, it's actually within our bodies that God makes us this way. But um, we, we don't really have to... Okay, so uh, but naked and without shame. So we have original nakedness, uh, which I think is something that I feel like we should probably talk about. Is uh, uh, hmm. Naked and without shame. I already talked about yeah. Into me, see is intimacy. Uh, it's the uh, yeah the unity. So so the thing is though, there's a lot of naked bodies in art. <laughs> and it's kind of a jump here, but um, it was supposed to be together. Uh, and I think um, yeah. So the Sistine Chapel has a lot of naked bodies. Um. And it's a uh, it's actually a, a confession of Genesis one and two. But there are a lot of naked bodies in art or in media that are not a confession of Genesis one and two, you know, mainly pornography. So um, I, ju- I just got this in my inbox a couple days ago or last week. And uh, Christopher West, he's a, he's a guy who uh, is a Roman Catholic teacher who uh, 
thinks a lot about the theology of the body. And uh, he went to go to this college in Kansas, Benedictine College, to give a little speech about... Uh, actually, I can't remember what it was about. But it wasn't about this. But at, while he was there, one of the students who was an art student asked him to come and see her, maybe her senior show. And uh, he, this is his reaction to it. And then maybe we'll think about it a little bit and maybe talk about it next week. I don't know. It's, uh, hopefully it works. Uh, I want to give a little, little reflection here about the difference between nakedness without shame and shamelessness. It's a very, very important distinction. So Danielle was talking about the experience as the artist of uh, being in a, in a class where the model unveils, right? Yes. And share again what you were saying about the, the reverence that you felt. Well, even in a, in a secular university, when a model comes in and all these people are coming from all different backgrounds, they might not necessarily know that what they're experiencing is something so holy and reverent, both body and soul. Uh, an image of God. Um, they experience it and see it and are struck into silence, into reverence, in a way that when I experienced it was so beautiful and, and brought me to tears that a room couldn't speak out loud and was just so concentrated on drawing this person and trying to find their form. Um, but at the same time, it's not about the form. It's trying to capture the person, trying to capture the soul. That is the artist's intention. So right there, right there is what John Paul says is the distinction between a proper portrayal of nakedness in art and an improper one is the intention of the artist. If the intention of the artist is through the body to reveal the inner mystery of the person, then we have true art. But if through the portrayal of nakedness they're obscuring the person, we have pornography. So we could say, this is kind of a, a paraphrase of John Paul II's ideas that maybe you've heard this said before, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person, but it shows too little. It portrays the body in such a way that the person is not revealed at all, uh, but the person is obscured. So I'll tell a story. One, one time teaching one of my courses, uh, John Paul II has a whole section on the difference between proper portrayal of nakedness in art and pornography. And uh, he speaks of the distinction between nakedness without shame and shamelessness. Any guesses as to the difference? Danielle? Um, naked without shame is, is seeing the other person in their fullness and their goodness because there is no reason to find yes, shame yes. in that. And shamelessness is just the absence of shame where you're able to work past, perhaps. So, you, 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 so what is shame? Shame is manifested when our body is being looked at without respect for the dignity of the person. We rightly want to cover our bodies when we're not being properly seen, right? Nakedness without shame is, I know I'm naked, but I know I'm seen, and I know I'm reverenced. But shameless nakedness is, I know I'm not being seen, but I don't care, Right? So those who pose in pornography, they know they're putting their bodies out there as objects to be used, and so they're showing a shamelessness. Everybody hearing that distinction? So here's the student told me the story, and it always stayed with me. This is probably 12, 15 years ago. Uh, teaching on this point, the student said, ah, now this makes sense to me. She was an art student like you, and she was in a modeling class, a figure drawing class, and the model came in, and dropped her robe before the students. But she noticed that blinds had not been pulled on the window, and she immediately put her robe back on. And she said, for, for all these years, I've been trying to figure out why did, why did she do that? And she said, John Paul II gave me the understanding. When she came in and she dropped her robe to the students, she was not being shameless because she was trusting the gaze of the students to see her rightly. Right? But as soon as she realized her nakedness was exposed to an unknown audience, she immediately covered her body, manifesting a proper 
shame, or we would more rightly say a modesty, right? So the fact that she immediately covered herself when her body was exposed to an unknown audience demonstrates that when she disrobed, she was not being shameless. She was trusting in the gaze of the artist. And the artist, like you, Danielle, the artist's great gift is to give others the ability to see what they see. So continue to share a gift, Danielle. Continue to share a gift. This is how we change the world. We overcome evil with good. Right? And we don't just wag our finger at pornography and say, bad, 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 bad. You're going to end in a Manichaean evaluation of the body, then. What is bad about pornography is not that it shows naked bodies. The Sistine Chapel shows naked bodies. What is bad about pornography is the way in which it shows the naked body as an object, as a thing divorced from the dignity of the person. So this holy art like this is helping us reunite with the true nature and dignity of the person through the body. Bless you, Danielle. Okay, uh, the, the art installation is uh, Adam and Eve. I don't need to figure that out, but um, we'll. Uh, so I just want to sum this. I, yeah, so I was hoping to spend a little time with art, nakedness, art, and gift, because um, I think it's very instructive to us. But um, we can maybe do that next week. Any reactions to that, Holly? Well, I immediately thought of is it Manet with the prostitute who's posing like she's waiting for her next customer and like the shamelessness. Of- right. I think it's Manet. Yeah, well, it's one of those French people, yep. It's one of, it's one of those, <laughs> I tolerate a lot of art. Right. Because I, that's my background, but that one, just, it, I can't, I can't do that one. Yeah, no, this is. It's really uncomfortable. Yeah, this, see, this is great, because um, the reason why I think it's instructive is that art is, is uh, obviously, it's, it's a little less, it's a little more apart from us than our own lives, so. So the art, I think, is great because it, will, it speaks the truth of what kind of Genesis 1 and 2 are getting at, is that naked and without shame mean, you know, is, a, is a very kind of fundamental statement about us as people. Um, and shamelessness, which, you know, I, I suffer from, I uh, have to admit, I... My kids always give me a hard time about mowing the lawn without my shirt on. And I say, I don't care. So, after seeing this video, I will, uh, I will not be doing that anymore. I should. <laughs> or I'll have a better explanation to my children. But, um, but this is, is important for us because um, overcoming the shame that uh, sin has is, is, uh, created is not by shamelessness. Um, but it's actually about how did he modesty, which I think is really interesting. But you can also have naked bodies and be modest, and that that then affects our relationship because then it means the seer has or the giver has a has a great responsibility because is the giver giving or taking. A giver, a giver technically can't take, but you understand what I mean. All right, uh, so we'll talk about that next week. But yeah, there's two two questions. Aaron, first. Well, it's just made me, it made me think. I've been talking a lot with Jake about the idea of these women who are feminists who express just such an anger about the fact that they should have to cover themselves up. Right. They're so angry that it, it's sort of like their bold move is to be like, "Hey, I'm a woman." Yeah. And be naked and do whatever I want. Right. That's supposedly like standing up for themselves. Yes. But it, it, it really helped in my mind to clarify why that feels so absurd because it's like, no, no, you're just putting yourself out there shamelessly for people who are going to make you an object. Right. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's such an interesting thing that in their mind. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. There's also a variety of other things, too, with respect to uh, um, Holly first. I'm sorry. Holly, go ahead. Um, it also made me think of, like, figure drawing at, because I had to do figure drawing also. Right. College. And 
our models were always in either like a small swimsuit. Right. But they, their genitals were covered. Yeah. And, and that was the way that we in college thought that they had to do it. Right. I mean, I was an immature 19-year-old, so that was more comfortable for me. Yeah, right. But the way that he's talking about it, there could be a place. Yeah, that's right. Christian environment that the viewer can behold. Yeah, this this college is a is a is a, a so she she no no that she's uh, transferred to this college. So Benedictine is a conservative Catholic college. Um, like you know, Wheaton College is conservative. You got to go to chapel. You know, uh, it, this would be kind of the same version as that. <laughs> they got to go to daily prayers. They 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 do they're the very active worship life here. But of course. Their modeling have their naked bodies, um, which is kind of you know is is a, is a really there's a fundamental difference on how each college sees the body. Um, okay, think about it in terms of gift giving, taking object, you know this all this stuff, and then we'll come back next week and we'll talk a little bit more about. Um, Original nakedness, I guess. Um, it, it's, uh, yeah, I know it sounds silly and it sounds strange talking about it, but um, it's, I think it's very important for us. So we'll, uh, we'll come back. Uh, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.